Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Throughout Richard Nixon's presidency, three of his top White House aides documented their experience through Super 8 home movie cameras. Young, idealistic, and dedicated, they had no idea that in a few years they'd all be the center of a history-making impeachment scandal. This unique and personal visual record created by H.R. Haldeman, Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Dwight Chapin was seized by the FBI during the Watergate investigations and filed away and forgotten for almost 40 years. Our Nixon is an all-archival documentary presenting those home movies for the first time. We're joined today by the director of R. Nixon, director Penny Lane. Penny, welcome to Film School. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you're so welcome, and thank you for being here. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the uh, how you came to know about this footage, which composes the vast majority of this uh, R. Nixon, and um, at what point during this process did you decide that uh, this was worthy of doing a documentary? Well, so... My co-producer, Brian Fry, had heard about these home movies from a friend of his about 10 or 11 years ago. And that mutual friend of ours, his name was Bill Brand, and he had been hired by the National Archives to do this really cool preservation project. He's a film preservationist. And he was telling Brian about this cool project that he'd been hired for, which involved 26 hours of silence. Super 8 home movies that, you know, that you've already described were filmed by Haldeman, Ellison, and Chapin. So, uh, yeah, Brian was really intrigued by that and saw a little kind of tiny bit of that material back in the day, but back then, um, and then wrote an article about it for um, Cineast magazine and, um, and, uh, and then always wanted to do something with these home movies, but, um, but never really had the funds because we had to invest about almost $20,000 just to be able to see them mm-hmm. because they were there. They were in the public domain. They weren't suppressed or anything, but um, there was no access copies. They were just the preservation prints, which, you know, were being kept safe in a vault. So when Brian came to me with the idea, I was instantly very intrigued, and we agreed that together we would be able to marshal the creative and also financial resources to do something interesting with these home movies. So so you knew, uh, it sounds like very quickly, that there was a, a, doc, a documentary, enough material to do a documentary uh, on Nixon. Yeah, I'm not sure that we knew it was even going to be a documentary. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think we had very open minds about what it was we were going to make. Uh, we, you know, Brian and I both come from a kind of more avant-garde experimental film background. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think initially we probably didn't really think it would be a documentary, or at least not a sort of traditional documentary that people would, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. see on CNN or see in movie theaters. Okay? Right, right. Well, tell a little bit about just how um, going in, did you have any... Um, did you have any sense of, of Richard Nixon as a president of the United States? Did you have any anything um, uh, in was there some kind of long view that you had about him, um, or was were you 
how did you approach him as as the subject of, of this documentary? Yeah, I, yeah, I think I think everybody. I don't think there's anyone almost in the entire world that doesn't have um, <laughs> like some sort of view of, of Nixon. He's obviously <laughs> pretty well known. Um, but yeah, so certainly I had you know um, your I would say average kind of mostly liberal person, college educated level of kind of knowledge about Nixon. You know, and in the world that I live in, in the world of the arts and film and literature, he looms very large. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's referenced all the time um, on TV shows that I watch and in novels that I read. And, you know, so it's almost not so much that I was a student of history, but that if you are my age, I'm 35, you've grown up with baby boomer-dominated art. And, you know, so you kind of can't not know a lot about the 60s and 70s if you're, yeah. if you're my age. So, yeah, so I have plenty of knowledge and, and opinion about Richard Nixon. But you have to realize that I didn't have what neither Brian nor I had was a deep kind of, we didn't have two things. We didn't have a deep kind of ideological commitment mm-hmm. to the subject. You know, this is, as far as, we're concerned, you know, not our, our history. This is not, a, you know, something that we, we are, you know, a gut level very passionate about politically. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, it's like, well, I'm not trying to convince anyone to vote for Nixon or not vote for Nixon <laughs> 40 years ago, you know. So there's that. But we also didn't have the kind of, you know, deep emotional, um, atta- you know, sort of commitment to the subject that I think a lot of people have, too. Most of the people that were around during that time, for obvious reasons. I mean, you know, again, in 40 years, um, some 25-year-old will make a movie about the, the Bush years, and you know, and I will be like, oh, what do you know? <laughs> so, you know, so it's not, it's not like I'm not elevating us to some rare, you know, unbiased position. We're not unbiased. We just didn't have, and I think you can see it in the film, yeah. that we just don't have that, like, we're not in it to to bash Richard Nixon right, again, right. and we're not in it to try to glorify him. Like, it's just that to us, like, that's kind of a, a moot point, because we don't care. <laughs> right. Well, we're talking with uh, Penny Lane, the director of the new uh, documentary, Our Nixon, just coming out in theaters today, August 30th, and we'll be rolling out across the country. And uh, uh, now I know it's not quite um, um, DVD or, or iTunes or VOD mm-hmm. yet, but I know that's in the works, right? Yeah, that'll be later this fall, winter. Okay. And again, I mean, let's just sort of, I want to frame this correctly, because it, this film is, yeah, certainly about uh, Richard Nixon, but it's seen through the eyes of three people who were extremely loyal and grateful for the opportunity that he had afforded, uh, John Ehrlichman, uh, Dwight Chapin, and... Um, H.R. Bob Haldeman. So, so it is. We're it's in a in a way it's we're see, we're seeing Nick, Dick Nixon through their eyes, um, but we're also seeing through the use of the footage and the um, some of the White House tapes, which I love the way that you were able to uh, integrate those into the story. Um, a side of a president that you would rarely, if ever, see um, in in such a sort of humanizing way just beautifully done. I mean, first of all, I want to congratulate you on on the the way you're able to bring us through the arc of his presidency in a very human and humanizing way. 
Mm, um, thank you. Yeah, it really is. It's really, t- it's just the, the footage and, and just the way, and, it, and none of it, and I want to emphasize this because there are people, as you were describing, whose hair, you know, burst into flames at the, at the mention of Richard Nixon. Um, you have to watch this to understand so much more of what we didn't really know or understand at the time about a lot of things, good and bad. Right. Uh, um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think if I could interject, sure, one please. of the things that I kept thinking about and that Brian and I thought about a lot was simply a question of you know, where you're standing in the world and what the world looks like from your position. And that's the kind of thought that looking at someone else's home movies kind of forces you to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're literally seeing the world from, from their position through their eyes. And so, you know, it's easy. It's always been very easy for me to imagine you know, myself or people that I know, you know, going to going to protest the Vietnam War or, you know, being at Woodstock or, mm-hmm. you know, just any number of sort of, you know, fill in the counterculture blank there. Um, and, and it's not even that I'm particularly radical in my politics, but this is, you know, that yeah. just seems more likely or something. Right, right. Um, it, but, you know, then just to think about, okay, well, you know, in 1969, it's not like everybody was getting ready to go to Woodstock. I mean, most people were, were you know, not doing that at all. And right. so suddenly realizing that I'd spent my whole life sort of assuming that everyone in a certain time period was a certain way, and then having the kind of obvious but, but striking realization that, that I had left out, you know, I don't know, 90% of America from my vision of what 1969 looked like right. was was very revelatory for me, you know, in terms of looking at history. When you look at the footage of the two great home movies, not just of his age, of Nixon's staff, mm-hmm. but of the, what he would call his silent majority, like these huge hordes of masses of crowds of people out to see him and shake his hand and vote for him and everything else, you suddenly realize that excuse me, that, you know, the kind of the counterculture has won the, the image war so well yeah. <laughs> that they basically made people like me forget there was a culture that they were countering. Right, um, right. And you really see that in this film. You really see, you know, you see patriotic kids dressed up in red, white, and blue outfits singing for Richard Nixon and, you know, and, and you know, men in Boy Scouts, you know, coming out and like men in you know, their World War II naval uniforms coming out. And all these people who, who you know, really liked Nixon. I mean, it's like really easy to forget that he was not always the sort of cartoonish, sweaty, bumbling villain that we have made him into now. Well, well, the lasting images of Nixon are, you know, that we that we've retained so culturally uh, locked onto is. The uh, the sweating Nixon at the uh, the Kennedy debates where he came right. off as as looking almost sinister in a way, and then um, right. and then the lasting image of him. Um, uh, other lasting images include "I'm not a crook," you know, getting on uh, mm-hmm. resigning the resignation speech and getting on the helicopter and leaving Washington. These are yeah. certainly not uh, the sum total, or should be considered the you know all of what Richard Nixon was uh, as a politician and as a, and as president. So I'm not going to paper over the things that I vehemently disagree or feel strongly about. But at the same time, again, seeing him, uh, just seeing any president, and especially him, because he was 
enigmatic. I think he always seemed to uh, um, project an embattled person, a man at at, yeah. at odds with himself and at odds with yeah. people he didn't understand and chose yeah. for whatever reason not to engage them to the yeah. degree he could have. Um, so there's that part of him. He sort of brings this on himself, but at the same time you hear him in these conversations with H.R. Bob Haldeman and Ehrlichman, and he gives a speech early on in the film um, and he uh, about his, uh, um, uh, oh gosh, uh, it's about his Vietnam War policy. Right, right, right. And he gets asking Americans to support him yeah. in his efforts to end right. the war. Yeah. And then, and then he's immediately on the phone, almost immediately on the phone with his people, saying, "How did I do?" And I want to know what other people think. So it's a very, it's yeah. just really a very interesting uh, yeah. and insight that again we we, we just don't have a, a record like this of another president that I'm aware of. Um, no, we really don't, and, yeah. and and that's one of the many. Well, it's really probably the biggest. I mean, we have a couple reasons why Richard Nixon is is so exceptional amongst presidents, yeah. and. You know, I know that his his loyal his loyal supporters who still exist in large numbers to this day want me to say because of his foreign policy accomplishments and other things that he did, he did quite a lot of things in his presidency that in retrospect were quite good. Okay. So that being said, the reason that he's heard of all over the world and people my age know a lot about him, even though they weren't around then and don't know anything about history <laughs> is because he resigned in disgrace. Yeah. And we've only ever had one president do that, guys. Like, yeah. you know, so, you know, <laughs> the kind of the argument where it's like, oh, Richard Nixon, he's just like all the other presidents. You're like, well, maybe, but no, because, you know, we've never had another president right. cry on national television, get into a helicopter and fly away. Okay? Right. Like that, right. that's very unique and it's very, and I think it's easy to laugh about it now, but, I can only begin to imagine the trauma of that as as a as a country to have. I mean, I can't I can't imagine. Actually, I can't imagine it. I, I can't even begin to imagine it. And so, and I had always thought about. I don't know. I always thought about Richard Nixon in relationship to the counterculture, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the, the the counterculture, which I'm including the press, even though that's not really exactly correct. Yeah. But the but the, the press and the counterculture, popular culture and the press. So. Suddenly, I started thinking about the relationship between Nixon and, for lack of a better term, square America. Yeah. The people who actually supported him, who voted for him in such great numbers in 1972, for example. And I couldn't stop thinking about how traumatic it would have been to have been a Nixon supporter, to have been a Nixon voter, and to have all those events unfold the way they did. And what a betrayal of their trust that was. That, that really started to emotionally get to me. And to me, that became the only reason that I became interested. The only reason that Watergate is even in my film is that ultimately it was not really about the conspiracy of Watergate, which has been covered very extensively by other filmmakers and other writers. It was really about the kind of emotional betrayal that Watergate represented for between Nixon and people who, who gave their lives to him in one form or another. Yeah. We're talking with Petty Lane, the director of our Nixon. I'm going to also throw in, inject one other thing about the humanizing impact of your film and sort of as someone, as a viewer, uh, bringing back some memories of my own feelings of, about Richard Nixon. If you go back in his history, he's a man who always felt rejected. He felt yeah. rejected. There was a very strong effort on, on they, um, 
Eisenhower didn't really want him as a vice presidential um, uh, nominee. Uh, they tried to get him off the ticket after there was some uh, disclosures about some possible right. financial situation, the Jecker speech, which essentially kept him as vice president. He was the heir apparent to the presidency, and he's beaten by an upstart Irish Catholic guy who he, I'm sure he, who was everything he wasn't. Mm-hmm. He loses his his home state of California in 62, makes a remarkable come back to become the one thing that he's wanted most in life, which was president, and then forced to resign in disgrace. All of these things served as a sort of a, a, a an ongoing parade, a cavalcade of rejection for him. Yeah. And yeah. I can only, as you just described, I can only imagine the sense of, uh, of uh, emptiness that he would have felt on that helicopter as it was lifting off the, the White House lawn, how, how completely broken yeah. he must have been. I'm, I'm, again, putting aside all the things that I didn't like about him, but as right. a person... As a human being, it's kind of hard not to feel something. Yeah. How, how, do, you, how do you not feel? It is, there's a, there's an, a, an arc of a Greek tragedy here, a man driven by, obsessed of, about gaining and, and, and holding on to power. And it became the thing that he and, the, and his obsession to know everything about, you know, McGovern and the Democrats and the White House uh, in the Watergate scandal was yeah. what what was the thread that pulled unraveled his his life. Right. And, um, you know, people talked about Nixon embattled Nixon, Nixon, the paranoid Nixon, this and Nixon, that. And there's there's an element of truth. But, you know, boy, it, it when you when you look at him uh, as a sort of historic figure and. Uh, uh, tragedy may be overstating it a bit, but it's still, it's still, a, it, it's still, a, um, it, it's a very fascinating look at a very fascinating uh, man. Um, and uh, um, I, but I <laughs> let's move away from the, the subject of your documentary just a little bit and talk uh, uh, somewhat a little bit about your uh, your opinions and views and how they may have changed or stayed the same regarding H.R. Okay. Bob Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Dwight Chapman, Japen, and the people who were really the, the the cinematographers in this film. Tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about how you feel or felt about them during the making of our Nixon. Well, I would start by saying that I didn't really know anything about them, right? So um, at the beginning, I, I certainly heard Alderman and Ehrlichman's names, but I probably, and I, I, I think I'm trying to be fair to myself, I think I probably knew H.R. Haldeman's um, buzz cut, haircut. Right, right. But that's probably about it. I'd heard... The term, the you know, the Berlin Wall, and I understood that Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Kissinger were considered this kind of trio of yeah. the Germans who kept people away from the president and kept him isolated and all these things. So I had, you know, kind of that amount of knowledge. So it wasn't that my views changed about them so much as I learned about them. And I will have to say that I think that, you know, these are three men who, in the way of all kind of minor historical figures, you know, their their lives become this kind of footnote, and it feels like a great disservice to a life. Yeah. And so, you know, it got to the point where I had learned so much about each of these men and had come to kind of care about them all in, in, in such real and deep ways that when I read the New York Times obituary of John Ehrlichman, you know, which was in the late 90s, he died in 1999, yeah. and, you know, you read the obituary, and it's as if it had been written in 1975, Mm-hmm. You know, with all the kind of vitriol of of someone who was, you know, embroiled in this, like, Watergate scandal, as if nothing had ever happened to him before or since. In other words, to have an obituary about a whole life, he would be just about one episode in that person's life just felt right. 
it felt like I felt that like in my heart as, as a, you know, as something that hurt. And so, so I guess that, that that's the most basic thing I could say is that I felt, I came to feel that they were whole human beings with flaws and, you know, um, good, good points, <laughs> good points yeah. and bad points and just, you know, personalities like anyone else. And, and it started to kind of hurt my feelings when I'd be reading these kind of press reports that just reduced them to these kind of villainous henchmen. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff just really started to bother me. But, you know, but it's also, it's also just like that's the nature of the game. Like, we, we, can't, we can't get through life, you know, trying to have an incredibly complex and nuanced view of every single thing that's ever happened, or else we wouldn't be able to write history books, we wouldn't <laughs> be able to make documentary films, and we certainly wouldn't be able to, like, go about our lives. So I understand that's the name of the game. But, yeah, I became quite protective of them. And so what to me, I think, is very, what I've been most surprised by in terms of the response is to the film is that, you know, there are people out there in the world who are so, um, who are so kind of vigilant about keeping Nixon's flame alive, mm-hmm. um, trying to, you know, rehabilitate his image. Um, and, you know, and I think there's a plenty of, plenty of validity to this mission. Um, people who believe that, you know, the kind of the shadow of Watergate is too deep and that we've forgotten everything else about Nixon. He was, in fact, very good in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're so obsessed with that, they can't, they don't see when they see our Nixon that this film is not part of that battle, or if it is part of that battle, it's helping them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, if, if anything, I thought people would be um, scandalized by the film for it being too sort of soft on Nixon and his men. But in fact, the, the people who have been most upset by the film have been people who are kind of rapidly pro-Nixon, and they don't notice at all, that we treat these men with a great deal of respect and gentleness and humanity, and that that was our goal. I mean, it's almost like a kind of a very affectionate film. Yeah. And, you know, so, so anyway, so I think just, if, you say, if, if you're a filmmaker and you've said that Nixon, that Watergate happened, then there are people in the world who just automatically assume that you're yet another person like Nixon bashing, which I think is too bad because that's really not what our goal was with the film at all, but... Uh, These I, men, I really, I, like I said, I mean, I care about them to the extent that I would care about anyone that I'd spent two years getting to know, yeah. making a film, and, you know, I had no interest at all in taking cheap shots at, at Nixon or any of these men, and that's just not how I operate. Well, and to that point, I think what you were describing is you were talking about the Ehrlichman uh, obituary in the New York Times. You want to, even for someone like myself, you want to say, what, fair is fair here, guys. You know, you you can't, as you said, you can't reduce someone's life to a punchline, right? And right. That, and that's kind of what those those things feel like. And yeah. um, and 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 that that part of it is, you know, you as someone who was personally was a, was in opposition to a lot of the things that were going on with the Nixon administration and what their policies were. Um, it is a set, and I can understand how you'd feel protected because you saw um, them. Uh, from different, I think people, if you could come from another planet or knew nothing about Richard Nixon and watch this film, I think you would. What you just described is how, how I would feel about it, which is, it just so happens the subject is very highly political, lived in a very political world. That was the world they inhabited. So, so much of the content has to do with politics, and that will, right. in of itself, engender a reaction. But you yeah. have to see this movie. You have to see our Nixon as a portrait of 
really three or four men, four men, who, who, who three of whom were in service to Richard Nixon, who thought to, that he was uh, an outstanding public servant and did everything they could to make him better. And yeah. as people, that's what they, they were doing. Um, and and yeah, and that's how I see it. And yeah, I mean, I was wondering too, like how somebody like you would feel listening to like there's a part in the film where where Dwight Chapin is describing his feelings about the anti-war protesters. Right. And he says, you know, well, you know, I didn't have much compassion for those people out in the streets. You know, they can do whatever they want. It's a free country, but. You know, from my perspective, you know, I knew in my heart that that the boss, you know, Richard Nixon, was doing everything in his power to end that war. Right. And I had seen him wiping tears out of his eyes over the subject and that he just thought, you know, he, he said that he believed that the anti-war protesters prolonged the war and made it worse. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of just this, this kind of comment that really struck me because, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a point of view. I mean, the, yeah. film, the film takes no position on whether that's right. a valid point of view or not. Right. But it struck me, you know, again, for the first time to imagine, I don't know why, but I've never thought about, yeah, what it would be like to be working for the president, right? And you're working 14 hours a day and you're working seven days a week and it's all consuming. And it's very exciting and it's very hard work. And, you know, you look out the window and you see a bunch of, like, hippies who look dirty like, lying around, you know? Right, like, right, right. And of course that's the way you would feel. I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. How else would you feel? You know, right. you'd say to yourself, what do those people know? They don't know anything about what we're doing. Right. No, it's true. You know? It's true. I, I'll tell you, for, for people of a certain age, Vietnam is a big, gigantic, flaming line. In the sea, in 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 yeah. the, in our in the view of the world we live in, it, it is the, it is a defining moment uh, or a, a slow motion train wreck in the history of the United States, in my opinion. Yeah. And yeah. people are adamant and vehement on one side or the other. They had, they were, and I think these things have over over time, things have sort of a little bit uh, more of perspective on it. But still, it for for a long, long time there was no issue. You could you could start a fight pretty quickly by just saying the word Vietnam for a long, long yeah. time. So, but, 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 but what I still can't quite wrap my mind around is was it wasn't that anyone thought it was a great war right. at all. Nobody liked it. But like, so the, the line in the sand was really support the president in his efforts or not. I mean, what exactly? Yeah. What was the fight exactly? I mean, honestly, being, I'm not being not being facetious. No, I know, and I understand, and I, I just and I can tell you the the the, the arguments were were in uh, growing up where where it was was we knew from the Pentagon Papers that what? they knew a long time ago. Back yeah. in the mid-60s, they knew it was a mistake. They knew it was not going, we couldn't win. In order to win meant killing thousands, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people to do mm-hmm. that. And for people like myself, knowing that they knew was absolutely enraging on, our, on the part of someone like myself to know that they right. continue to perpetrate something 
that they everyone knew was was right. a mistake. That yeah. is inexcusable. And I don't care yeah. if we look bad yeah. to the rest of the world. There was no excuse for that to continue. So yeah. I mean, that that's just how I feel. And I'm you of know of course of yeah, course yeah. Do you think that do you think that today? I mean that that something like Pentagon Papers would would have that kind of impact? I I don't think so. No, I think well I, mean, I, I I don't think no. that I personally would be surprised at all <laughs> to find out that we had known all along that the war in Iraq was a big fat mistake. Right. Or, I mean, like, to me, it's like, well, of course we knew all, you know, like. Right. But, but, like, but Penny, you, 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 that's your frame of reference because of right. Vietnam, because of Vietnam. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, yeah. and so th- that is, yeah, I mean, again, I think we're, as we, as we do this interview, we're about to do something, I think, again, that will enrage so many people in the world. <laughs> uh, again, once again, we are, you know, we are the, anyway, the, the bull in the China shop and, and it, the consequences yeah. are, are real for yeah. people on the other end. Wow. Uh, well, I've just we've gotten away. I want to tell people again, and I've got to thank you so much for being here and taking so much time. R. Nixon uh, is just a wonderful documentary. The, the reviews have been spectacular uh, and well deserved, and um, it's it's getting a run theatrical run starting today in my my hometown. <laughs> It'll be at the Port Theater in Corona del Mar. It's up in Los Angeles as well, and rolling out across the country. The website is ournixon.com. Ournixon.com. Well, I thank you so much, Penny Lane, for being here, and um, I hope you're working on something uh, new and exciting, uh, and I hope you'll come back and, and spend some time with me on, again. I, I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Penny Lane, uh, for being here on Film School. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.